So Moses learned to be a servant. He learned to trust. He learned to obey. I just want to make one little, one more little application. Um, I'd like to encourage every person here. This is for, for Jesus Christ's glory and for your blessing. Uh, I wanted to encourage each person here to ask the Lord, um, how would you have me to be serving you specifically? Um, that's what a servant does, right? A master dictates his form of service, right? He dictates what he wants to do, what he doesn't want to do. A servant um, follows orders. So I'll give you one little example. Um, there was a, a family camp and they had a need last minute um, for a teacher for the little kids. And, um, and I heard this discussion that was taking place. And then I heard that they had asked one of these young men to do it. And when I say young, I mean like my age and down. Um, and, and, um, and this young guy, I asked him by text, I said, are you going to do it? And now let me please emphasize, this is a young man that I greatly admire and a young man that I love. But his response um, to my text, are you going to do it, was um, something like, I'm not quoting, but something like, I would be willing to do it if asked in advance. I'm not willing to do it last minute. And I didn't respond to the text. I just kind of just took it in and thought, okay. But you know, my thought was, that's not how a servant thinks. That's not how a servant talks, right? Do you see my point? A, a servant follows orders. So, so in that particular case, the question would be, does the living God want me to do this? Now, if the answer is no, then that's fine. It's fine to say no. But, but if the living God wants you to do it, a servant doesn't dictate his his realm of service, his form of service, his timing of service, any of, any of those things. And as you consecrate yourself to the Lord and say, I want to serve you, the Lord will take you up on that, right? Um, you all know Steve Price. I know and love Steve. He, uh, he prayed at that same family camp. He prayed, Lord, um, I want to serve you. Uh, there was a really good message, very convicting message. Steve went back to his room and he gave his whole life to the Lord. And at two in the morning, someone knocked on his door with a pool of blood in his hands. And then a few hours later, someone knocked on his door and Steve just kind of smiled and, sa and said, okay, Lord, you're taking me at my word. I'm willing to serve you if it means getting up all night, you know, to deal with bloody noses and all the rest of it. So anyways, uh, we learned great lessons of Moses' life. Now, moving on to this next message. Um, if you want to jot down a title, you can jot down Moses' excuses and God's responses. I love this portion of Scripture. Moses' excuses and God's responses. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I love it because in every one of these excuses, there are five that we'll look at, in every one of these excuses, I resoundingly see my natural tendencies when the Lord opens up a door. So let's begin by reading Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. 
Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a land, a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So, Moses is called to do a great work for God. If we have a heart to serve the living God, then I guarantee you, either tonight or in the future, you will hear the voice of God uh, through His Word, through the Spirit of God's promptings inside of you, however the Lord wants to do it. You will hear Him call your name in the same way that He calls Moses' name. And He will draw you to a certain kind of service. Um, If you have a heart to listen tonight and would even be so bold as to say, Lord, if you want to speak to me tonight, I want to hear what you want to say to me, then maybe the Lord would call you to witness to one of your co-workers. My dad worked with a guy for 30 years. Uh, Maybe I've told you about him. His name was Spanky, Spanky Thompson. And um, one day, just out of the blue, I I was talking to my dad. I said, have you ever witnessed to Spanky? And, and, And my dad just kind of thought about it for a second. And he realized we all loved Spanky. He was very gracious to us. He loaned us his speedboat one day uh, every summer and we'd go out to the lake for that day. He paid for the gas. I mean, this was a really nice guy. Uh, He'd been through seminary. Uh, He was an ordained Methodist minister, not a believer. And I said, have you ever witnessed to Spanky? And and my dad just kind of thought for a second and then he thought, you know, I never have. And it was so fun watching my dad pray and purpose. And he did. Uh, he went out with Spanky many times for breakfast and showed him. Spanky wrote his dissertation denying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And so my dad would show him verse after verse after verse. Christ died for us. Spanky went into eternity denying the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, he died the same week that my dad did. Um, maybe the Lord would call you to witness to somebody, uh, a co-worker. Maybe the Lord would call you to witness to your boss. Persecution is growing in North America, isn't it? You can lose your job for witnessing to your boss. More common in North America is you don't get a promotion, right? When they have to choose someone to let go because they're downsizing, then you get booted. That's more common, the kind of persecution in North America. But persecution is growing rapidly in my, from my perspective. Uh, maybe the Lord would call you to do a job that you don't like, something that you don't care for. Maybe he would call you to help in a, in a kid's work, a kid's club, and you just wouldn't naturally ga- gravitate toward that. Maybe he would call you to clean the building, to prepare for ministry when you'd prefer to watch a movie with your wife. I've lived that one. Um, maybe he would call you to be a missionary. Um, boy, I think missionaries are heroes. I don't want to embarrass missionaries, but I just think they're heroes. The things that they do, 
I was at a, a Bible camp this summer with a missionary who lives in one of the hottest places, literally, the hottest places in all the world, the Sahara Desert. And he spends his life reaching out to, to Muslims that live, because of persecution uh, from their own people, they live in the Sahara Desert, right? And you spend your days, it's too hot to be in the sun, so you spend your day in a clay building with a tin roof, right? We call those ovens. And, and he spends his day in that building. It's 140 degrees inside. And then when the sun goes down, you can go out, right? He's just loving people in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, I just think they're, I think they're heroes. The things that they do, um, I admire them. Uh, maybe the Lord would call someone here to be a missionary. Uh, maybe the Lord would call you to be an elder. We talked some about that this last session. Um, it's a weight to carry. It's a burden. Um, it's prestigious for about four hours, and then it's a it's a work. And um, like a guy back home, he says that you get you become an elder, and this is uh, sadly too often true. He says you become an elder, and actually what he says is this: he says you start meeting with the elders, you put on a T-shirt that has a target on the back, and then he said you become a recognized elder, and you get a T-shirt that has a target on the back and the front. <laughs> And too often, that's true. Um, it's a work. Maybe the Lord would call you to be an elder's wife. Um, every husband and every wife has to decide at some point, am I going to be selfish with my husband um, and want him for me? Like, I hope you do want your husband for you, right? But am I going to keep him for me and hold him back from the service that God has for him? Or am I going to push him out the door? This I'm just quoting the premarital counseling that Lynn and I were given. Um, he looked directly at Lynn. He said, push him out the door to accomplish the service uh, that God sets in front of him. That does not mean neglect your family. That does not mean run off and save the world and never talk to your kids. I, I fully embrace that and believe that wholeheartedly. But it does mean that you don't make an idol of each other and that you're selfless with each other as opposed to selfish with each other. Does that make sense? I see a lot of married couples that decide, young married couples, that, that are selfish with one another, and one or the other holds the one or the other back from the service that God has for them. So an elder, an elder's wife, a full-time worker, uh, you get the idea. If you have a heart to listen to the Lord, then um, maybe tonight, uh, he'll tap you on the shoulder and he'll call you to the work that he has for you, particularly at this point in your life. Maybe it would happen sometime in the future. Well, that's what's happening to Moses. So excuse number one. I love this. Um, he gets this incredible opportunity from the Lord. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you can bring my children, uh, the pe- my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. The fulfillment of Moses' dream, his ambition, his zeal, right? And look at his response. Moses said to God, Who am I? And notice there's two things. That I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? One has to do with standing before great men, right? Who am I that I would stand before a great man? The other has to do with leading the people of God. Who am I that I would be a leader of the people of God like that? Um, Who am I? I know it's kind of a silly example, but there was a girl at Bible camp that I liked for three summers in a row. Her name was Tanya. And um, I liked her from a distance, three summers in a row. And then all of a sudden I found out that she liked me and I went, (gasps) and I never talked to her again, right? (laughs) Like there was all this, there was all this, like just from a distance, right? I just thought, oh, this would be great, you know? And then all of a sudden it was a real possibility and it just scared me to death, you know? 
And um, here Moses was so eager, right, just chomping at the bit to do this great work. And then the Lord opens the door and he does that. He goes, ah! right? Who am I that I would do something, something like that? So point number one, and I'm just going to try to put this in my own words. Point number one is I'm not good enough. Moses gets a great opportunity from the Lord and he responds, I'm not good enough. In other words, inadequacy. Can you identify with that? I think almost everybody can identify with this. Maybe some people wouldn't, but I think almost everybody does. And I'll tell you, this is an overwhelming characteristic of my life. It always has been. In my college years, I learned a great lesson that arrogance and self-consciousness are the same sin. One is thinking too highly of yourself. The other is thinking lowly of yourself. But what do they have in common? You're focused on yourself, right? So an occupation with self is not giving Christ his proper place. Your eyes are in the wrong place. In fact, if you read through this story, um, the Lord comes to Moses and says, Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you can bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses says, Who am I that I would do that? And then you look at God's response. We haven't even read it yet. Look at verse 12. So the Lord responds. He said, I will certainly be with you. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I don't want to make it too complicated, but notice the Lord gives two responses, right? So Moses responds in two ways. Who am I that I would stand before great men? Who am I that I would lead the people of God? And then the Lord responds in two ways as well. I will be with you. That's an incredible theme of Scripture. This is your homework, right? It's all voluntary, just like the Christian life. You do not have to do well if you don't want to. Um, uh, but if you want to, this is a fun study. Um, new, many times in the Word of God, the Lord reassures His people with this little phrase, I will be with you. In Joshua, right? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Jesus Christ stood in front of His followers, um, right before He was ascended on high and said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Can you imagine hearing that from Christ? Anybody know approximately how many people were on planet Earth when Jesus Christ said that to his followers? According to what I read, approximately 530 million. I love this, right? There are 530 million people in North America today that need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in in this generation. Does that seem like a big task to you? It's immense, right? Well, Jesus Christ looked at his followers and he said, go into all the nations. You know, go make disciples of the nations. This incredible task. And then you remember how he comforted them? Lo, I am with you always. Right? It's the abiding presence of God. Hebrews chapter 13, the same thing. He quotes what he says to Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will not be afraid. Um, It's an incredible theme of the word of God. So Moses responds right off the bat. He says, I'm not good enough. When I was, I don't remember the exact age, but somewhere around 25, 26 years old, I became burdened about overseas missions and and not um, long-term overseas missions. Never in my whole life, literally, have I been burdened about long-term overseas missions. I've always known this is my continent. This is where God has placed me. This has always been where my heart has been. This has always been where I've wanted to serve the Lord. But I just developed this burden for short-term overseas missions. And the funny thing is, the real point of it is that when I 
when I preach the Word of God in North America, I want to do so with a global perspective, not with a Western bubble mindset. Does that make sense? So here I am, 25, 26 years old, and I developed this burden. So I say to the Lord, Lord, if you want to use me in overseas missions, then please just open the door. Within a week, maybe two, I had lunch with Mike Atwood at Red Lobster, and, um, and yeah, mmm, and um, we sat there across the table from each other, and, um, and Mike said, um, there are two of us that are going to go to Kenya. We've been praying about taking a group of four rather than two, and um, the two of us prayed about it and talked about it, and we wanted to ask you if you would pray about being part of that team. So here I've just prayed for the first time in my life that I remember, um, Lord, if you want me to do this, please open the door. And then the Lord just goes, right? And so I talked to Lynn about it. We talked to the oversight about it, and I ended up saying yes. Now, this was some ways out there, right? And so I began to do my studies. I had all my studies. I had all that all put together. But as we got closer and closer to that date where we were going to go to Africa, by the way, what we were doing was teaching elders, uh, 150 to 200 men, um, and and you would teach them from about 9 in the morning till about 10 at night. You'd end the day with a question and answer session. And, and um, as we got closer and closer... I'll tell you exactly what was in my head. Scott, you idiot. Right? And I kept saying that. I know you shouldn't say the word idiot from a pulpit, but I'm speaking to myself. Um, and I would literally say that. I just would, I, my anxiety grew and grew and grew. And I just kept saying, why on earth? You know, what are you doing? Right? What makes you think you should fly halfway around the world to teach elders? Um, and here I am, just a baby, right? Amongst the people of God. And I just thought, what are you doing? Uh, I talked to Steve Price at one point on the phone, and and I told him, uh, I said, you you go to Kenya. I'll give you my notes. You go to Kenya. I'll cover your shifts at the hospital. Um, it'll work out fine. No one will ever know. Um, we look like twins, anyways. And so, anyways, um, I was terrified. And and if I, I don't know. I don't know if it was quite this bad, but I almost felt like if there was any way I could get out of it, I would have. And it was all because my eyes were on what? Yeah, me, right? It's my overwhelming tendency, exactly what Moses does here. Who am I that I should go stand before whoever, right? Who am I that I should lead the people of God? It's, it's a, yeah, anyways, I think you understand what I'm saying, um, Moses' response is, I'm not good enough. Um, And the Lord's answer, I will be with you to the abiding presence of God. Whatever he asks you to do, he will be with you the whole time. And then, please notice, he guarantees him victory. At the end of verse 12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He guarantees him victory. Isn't that awesome? Have we been given a huge task to do? It's hard for me to get outside of my burden. I apologize. I know that we live in a whole world, right? There's seven continents. But my burden is so overwhelmingly this continent that I, that's all I think about, right? That's, that's what I pray for. That's what I'm working for, right? That's all I think about. Just take that, if you would. 530 million people. And the church of God has been given the task to reach, to make disciples of 530 million people. And then you've got this promise, lo, I am with you always. Now, can we, can we apply the second part of that to ourselves? Are we guaranteed victory? I find this incredibly encouraging, right? We all know the verses, right? I 
will build my church. Isn't that encouraging? Is Jesus Christ discouraged about the work of God in North America? Is He biting His nails in heaven saying, He's, He will not fail nor be discouraged. We have the right leader. Boy, I pray, we had a good time praying today for Great Awakening 3 in North America. I long for that. I ache for that. The next great work of God in North America. He did it through Whitfield and Wesley Edwards. He did it through Moody and Spurgeon. I long to see him do that again. I long for that. He says, I will build my church. So, uh, Moses' uh, excuse, I'm not good enough. God's answer, you're looking at the wrong person. I will be with you. Okay, excuse number two. Uh, Let's read verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Oh, yeah, I'll leave that for now. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Uh, Point number two in my words, Moses' excuse is, I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Now, the specific question in the text is, is what if they say, what if they ask me, Um, what his name is, what am I supposed to tell them? But you just take that in a general way. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? And I'll go ahead and give it to you. God's answer is, again, twofold. I am who I am. So he reveals himself. That is, I exist because I exist. So it's the self-existent, eternal God that is sending Moses to Pharaoh. There's some authority in that, right? Remember what happened when the Lord Jesus used that title? in the New Testament. And so he reveals himself to Moses here in in this text. And then he gives him a second answer as well. Um, This one is very uh, striking. He says, I am has sent, the I am, or I have sent me to you. I'm not saying it right. But um, number one, I am because I am. And then number two, I am has sent me to you. That's what he's supposed to say. So if God sends you to do a task and you say, I don't know enough, his answer is there's more to learn about him, right? He'll reveal himself to you, but he also emphasizes the fact that I have sent you. It doesn't matter if you know everything, I have sent you. Let me give you one quick little illustration. This is somebody that I've known for a long time. Um, I, I, um, years and years ago, uh, they came and they said, I've, I've been studying this book and I've really been enjoying it. And I said, hey, praise God. And uh, they said, as soon as I get through this book, I'm going to go door to door through my neighborhood. And again, I said, praise God. Right? And then I saw them uh, you know, sometime later. I think it was years later. And they said, I'm studying this particular book. And as soon as I get through this book, I'm going to go door to door through my neighborhood. And I said, praise God. And then I saw them later and they said, I'm studying this particular book. Right? Now they're on their third book. As soon as I get through this, I want to go door to door through my neighborhood. And I had that little flag. Does that happen to you? Right in the back of your mind, it starts waving around like something's not right. Um, but I still just said, praise the Lord. 
And then a fourth time I saw them and they said, I'm studying this book. They were on to another book, right? And as soon as I get through this, then they were trying to muster up the courage to do what God was leading them to do in their neighborhood. And then you want to know what happened? They died. He lived and died under the burden that I should go to my neighbors and tell them about Christ. But it was this exact thing that held him back. What if they asked me a question that I don't know the answer to? So what can you determine from God's answer? I love this. You don't have to know every answer, right? We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to, to go on behalf... This is Second Corinthians 5. Go on behalf of a God who is pleading with the world to be reconciled to Him through Christ. And we're to go implore them on behalf of Him to be reconciled to God. So, so we go represent Christ. That's what an ambassador does. Oftentimes people will say an ambassador represents his country. And that's not actually 100% accurate, right? An ambassador, in the most technical sense, an ambassador represents the leader of the country. So we're not representing heaven. We're not trying to win people to geography like heaven. We're representing Christ, a Savior that loves them, that would weep over them, that is literally from the Scripture pleading with them to be reconciled, to be saved. And it's our job to go to them. We've been given that great task. I think I've told you this before, but I'll joyfully tell you this again. I'm an evangelistic chicken. I'm burdened about lost people. I'm going to be open with you both ways. I weep over lost people. I weep over Ottawa, Kansas. I weep at times over the 530 million souls in North America. That's true. You stick me next to somebody in a plane and the Lord starts opening up a conversation on the inside... Every time on the inside, I go, <gasps> right? And I just panic. And then I say to the Lord, please help me, please help me, please help me. And it's such a delight to be far enough down the road now that I know the Lord will help me. Now, I still do that. I still go, <gasps> like, I don't know what to say, right? But then the, the Spirit of God just guides the conversation along. And you look back at it and you can just say, praise the Lord. The Spirit of God helped me represent His Son. Now, that's who I am. I've actually grown to the point where I can delight in my weakness. Do you remember that verse? How Paul would do that? I do that. I delight in that because I see the Lord giving help, giving help, giving help. Well, when Moses was given this opportunity, he said, I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? And the Lord says, okay, this is who I am. And he says, I have sent you. The important thing is not that you know everything. It's that I have sent you. Okay, excuse number three. Go to chapter four and verse one. Chapter four and verse one. Then Moses answered and said, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Point number three or excuse number three is what if they won't believe me? Obviously, just taken right out of the text. What if they won't believe me? Forty years later, Moses remembers the rejection, uh, not only of Pharaoh, but of the, of the people of Israel. And so, with that still fresh in his mind, given this open door, he says, well, what if the same thing happens that happened last time? Uh, what if I go and say what you're saying that I should do, and then um, they don't believe me? Now, the Lord's response here is so encouraging. Verse 2, The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. 
He said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then he said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. He reached out his hand, caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So God's answer, point number three, and again, this is in my words, I will provide the proof. I will provide the proof. Now, I'm just going to assume Sunday school knowledge, right? So you've got a rod, and then, and then you have the hand, right? He puts his hand in his garment, and he pulls it out with an incurable, horrific disease. It'd be very shocking. And then you put your hand back in your garment, you pull it out, and it's healed, right? So you've got a rod, and then you've got the leprous hand, and then the water into blood. And you take that in its context. What is God saying? He's saying, I will provide the proof. You do not have to provide the proof. I will provide the proof. I delight in this. With a burden for 530 million people in North America, I delight that I have a God that is a rewarder of those that seek Him. I use that all the time. I just delight in that. If people will genuinely seek God, the Lord will reveal Himself to them. Now, He's a person, not a science project, right? Everybody wants to treat Him like a science project, right? You show me God, they'll say, right? Show me the evidence. They want to treat him like a science project. He's a person, right? Two people go out on a date. You can choose to reveal yourself or you can choose to not reveal yourself. The Lord is a person. So, but he's a rewarder of those that genuinely seek him. And so he says to Moses, Moses says, what if they don't believe me? He says, I will provide the proof. Now, there's one thing here that I, that I want to emphasize, and it's this little phrase. What is that in your hand? If you happen to be taking notes tonight, please write that down. What is that in your hand? And I'm, I'm driving at a very specific thing. My encouragement is this. If you're not taking notes, that's fine. Just make a mental note and, and please do the same thing. Ask the Lord, what is it that you have put in my hand? So let's think about this for just a second. Moses spent 14,600 days in the desert as a shepherd. Because of that, he ended up with, it's nothing magical, right? He ended up with a shepherd's rod in his hand. Forty years earlier, he never would have wanted a shepherd's rod in his hand, right? But now, because of the way life has gone in the desert, he has a shepherd's rod in his hand, and the Lord says, right, to his, to his excuse, what if they don't believe me, what have I put in your hand? So what I'm encouraging you to do is to ask the Lord, what have you put in my hand? Don't be creative. Don't even go and try to think. Just ask the Lord, what have you put in my hand that you want to use for your glory? And I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I mean, we know this, right? The rod of Moses becomes what? The rod of God. Remember? It ends up being greatly used of God. It's a simple rod. There was nothing special about the rod of Moses. And, but the Lord took what was in his hand and used it. Um, way back in the day when our assembly, we were probably about 25 people at this point, we looked around and, and we, we prayed and we were just watching and, and thinking and seeking God. And, and we thought, okay, what do we need that we don't have now? And we all kind of collectively came to this conclusion that, that we wanted before the Lord... Um, it was actually more than that. It was the Lord was leading us to start a kid's work. We had no kids outreach in the assembly at all. We wanted to reach out into the community with the gospel. And so we started this kid's work. It was just tiny, 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 tiny at the beginning. 
Lynn and I at the time lived in low-income housing uh, in Topeka, Kansas. We were the only married people that we knew in this huge uh, housing project. And so there were tons of single parents with kids. And um, what the Lord had put in my wife's hand, in my hand too, but in a different way, was a baby at that point. And if any of you have ever been around babies, um, they're kid magnets, right? Kids love to come and see babies. And I, I had the, the most fun watching this. So here at the chapel, we start this kid's work. I never put the two things together. Um, Lynn is at home uh, with this little baby, changing diapers, right, all the rest of it, all day long. And then I start coming home from work, and my living room is full of kids. And they were being drawn to Danny, our baby. And um, she had them all lined up in the living room, memorizing Bible verses. And if you'd memorize enough Bible verses, then you would earn um, a pew Bible, right? Now, to them, this was, this was incredible, right? A hardback Bible, their very own. You could write your name in the front of it. You could take it home. Like, this was a huge prize. Uh, to us, it was a $4 pew Bible. But here they are learning verses and then earning their own Bibles, joyfully going home and showing their parents these Bibles, we would go over to their homes and I would knock on the door and I'd say, I'm Scott, I live right over there. Um, you know, your, your daughter comes over and hangs out sometimes um, during the day with my wife. Uh, we have uh, a kid's work at our church and we were just wondering, and then the parents at that point would say, okay. And I'd say, well, we were just wondering if we could take, okay. Well, it goes from six to, okay, right? They didn't care. You know, it was sad. They didn't care. They didn't want to be troubled by their kids. They were happy to get rid of the kids. They just didn't care. And so there was a time where we were trucking off to the chapel 95% of the kids' work, and it just bloomed, right? Um, right during those years, it just, it just grew like crazy, and all of those kids were coming, right? And it was just neat to see that what the Lord had put in my wife's hand, He was using so gloriously. Um, I'll give you one more example, hopefully just to provoke thinking. There was a time where um, one of our guys, who's a young elder now, he and I were meeting, praying together on Thursday mornings. Um, we had filled up every night of the week with a different service for the Lord. Um, I will pause to say that part of that is family night. Part of that is date night. I think those are incredibly important things. But every night was full with a different service for the Lord. Um, and then we realized, oh, you can stack things. And so we would have a 6 to 8 and then an 8.30 to 10.30, right? So that you're increasing what you can do for the Lord. Um, at one point, we were very burdened, very concerned. The assembly was growing. Um, there were many needs. And so we were burdened and concerned about the needs that were there that we were unable to address. And so we were asking the Lord, how do we spend time with these people and these people? These people are having a hard time. And, um, and that Saturday, um, our kids were all into soccer. They were still pretty little, but they were all soccer players, right? And so we all show up at soccer on Saturday morning, and there I am, ready to enjoy watching my kids play soccer on a Saturday morning. And this guy, who's a young elder in our assembly now, um, he showed up, and he had, this was such a novel idea to me, he had this family with him that we were all burdened about. And the Lord had given him this thought, right? What's in your hand? And he thought, okay, soccer, right? Soccer's in my hand. So, so not only can I just go watch my children play soccer, but I can simply make a phone call and invite this struggling family to come with me 
and then we'll all sit down in chairs and I can sit here and talk to this guy for an hour and a half while my kids play soccer. Now, I know that's simple, right? But the Lord has put it in his hand. Does that make sense? So that's what I'm encouraging you to do. And I'm not encouraging you just to think, oh, that's a good point from the Bible, right? If you think it's a good point from the Bible. Um, what, I, what I really encourage you to do is to, is to consciously, physically, in that sense, ask the Lord, what is it that you have put in my hand for your glory at this point in my life, right? Don't, don't just think about all these wonderful, great, hypothetical things that could take place. But what has he actually put in your hand? Maybe it's something very simple like a shepherd's rod that you would never think in a million years. How could the Lord use a shepherd's rod? Every shepherd has a rod. Like, what's special about that? And yet the Lord took it and used it. So where has he put you? Um, what is it that he has put in, in your hand? And I'll just say it one more time. I love the Lord's answer. I will provide the proof. I will provide the proof. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, um, he said this. He said, The problem is not the paucity of available truth. It's the hypocrisy of our search. And after I went and looked up the word paucity, I I thought, ooh, that's good. (laughs) Paucity means lack of, right? Uh, So the problem is not the lack of available truth. It's the hypocrisy of people's willingness to search for truth. And so we don't have to worry, what if they don't believe me? God says, I will provide all the proof that's necessary. I'm so encouraged by that. How are we going to reach the 530 million? The Lord will provide all the proof that's necessary. I don't know how he'll do it, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. He'll do it. I know he'll do it. He wants every soul to be saved. Okay, excuse number four. Uh, Chapter four, verse ten. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Uh, Point number four, if you're taking notes, is I don't have the skills. Can you identify with that one? I don't have the skills. Uh, You know, it's funny because what that subtly is saying to the Lord is this. You're calling someone to a task that you have not equipped them to do. I know we wouldn't mean it that way, but that's, that's what you're implying. If the Lord opens a door for you and you say, I don't have the skills, it's actually a very subtle attack, right? Lord, you're, you're leading me to do something you've not equipped me to do. Uh, God's answer, I delight in this. Um, All of his answers are amazing. Uh, Verse number 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So, uh, well, no, let's keep going. Um, Verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and will teach you what you shall say. So his answer, it's really one answer, but I just want you to notice three little things. Who has made man's mouth? And then notice the two things. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you should say. Obviously, the immediate context is public speaking, right? And so there's very obvious application to that. But it would be true for anything that God calls you to. I will be with you. I will teach you. I, lo- I love this. Um, I-, I do want to highlight one thing in verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute? That's a disability. The deaf? That's a disability. The seeing? That's an ability. Or the blind? That's a disability. 
So you can draw directly from the text that the Lord has made you, I'm not talking about your sin, the Lord has made you exactly how He wanted you to be. Is that good news? When He knit you together in your mother's womb, He made you exactly how He wanted to make you. When you were saved, for every person in this room that's a believer, He complemented all those natural talents and abilities and personality and all the rest of it. He complemented it with the perfect blend of spiritual gifts. He's predestined your good works before the foundation of the world that you might walk in them. And then He opens doors for you. And we, because of who we are, we pull back at such things. And we say, I don't have the skills to do something like that. Right? And the Lord simply says, I have made you with your abilities and your disabilities. You rejoice in your weaknesses. You run with your strengths. Who has made man's mouth? Uh, The first conference that I was ever invited to come to... um, I don't remember exactly how old I was, probably like 27, and um, it was out in Arizona, and I didn't even eat breakfast on Friday morning before I went on the plane. I I was so scared, um, just terrified. Like, I get myself into these situations, and then I just constantly think, what did you do, right? And so so, um, I went off to the airport, I flew to Arizona, Um, I survived... um, meeting number one. Really, honestly, that's how it felt. Like I gave my message and people actually made nice comments about it. Um, and I just survived it. I got back to my host home. I slept. I showed up with this Bible the next day and one of the elders, he came up to me. I was standing there in the foyer before the full Saturday. He came up. He said, hey, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you. We have a question and answer period in the afternoon and you'll go up on stage and then the people will ask you questions and, you know, and this is just me, right? And this is kind of a silver-haired assembly, right? These people have been saved for 177 years. And <laughs> Ironside couldn't answer their questions back in the day, and so they're going to ask me. And um, you know what I found that whole weekend is that the Lord gives help. Um, but I survived the Saturday. I survived the Sunday. I got back onto the plane and kind of collapsed into my seat. And on the way home, I was thinking, I was praying... And I learned an incredible lesson, and I know it's so simple. I know it's so simple, but it's such such an essential lesson. I learned that weekend that the Word of God works. Um, I went into that weekend feeling like I had to perform, and I don't mean like an actor, but I mean I had to preach in such a way as to make it a good conference. And I learned that weekend that if you will hold up the Word of God, if you will... um, illustrate the Word of God, if you will exposit the Word of God, if you will apply the Word of God, all you have to do is magnify the Word of God. And then the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to every heart. So the person that makes it a good conference is the Spirit of God. For a young man, that was an incredible lesson to learn. That was such a joy for me to learn. And so I absolutely, overwhelmingly went into that conference thinking I do not have the skills. I should not have even accepted this invitation. And yet the Lord said, I will teach you. I will be with your mouth. Uh, Lynn and I decided as a young married couple that, that if the Lord opened a door for us for service, that we were committing ahead of time. We were committing to walk through that door. Now that's the key. It has to be the Lord opening a door for you. Again, it's not, I have many friends from Bible college, many friends that went out and created their own ministry. Um, 
we decided before the Lord, this is just the grace of God, but we decided before the Lord that what we should do is give ourselves to the local assembly, be faithful, do anything that has to be done, and wait on the Lord to open up His ministry for us. I overwhelmingly think that that's the right way to, to go. Um, and I'm thankful the Lord wooed me to that because that is not that was not my mindset going into Bible college. Anyways, um, so we'd made, we have this fundamental conviction. If the Lord opens a door for us, we're going to walk through it. So I was in sales, never really liked sales, but I had two weeks of paid vacation a year. Um, we chose to live in Kansas uh, where my family was. My wife's family was in Ohio. And I told her very early on, um, I will use those two weeks of paid vacation for your family. Right? We made the decision as a family. I mean, I really made the decision as the leader of the family. This is where we're going to live. This is where we're going to serve the Lord. So I will use these weeks of vacation for your family. Now, the other part of the story is I had 10 weeks of unpaid vacation. Um, So I had incredible flexibility during those years. Um, Kansas Bible Camp called me one summer. I was probably 23 years old and said, uh, we have this volunteer position that, that we had it covered, but then the guy, can't, he can't come. We asked the Lord who to have come. Uh, the Lord put you on our heart. We just wanted to call and ask if you would pray about it, if you can come. So this is what Lynn and I did. Um, we talked about it together, prayed about it together, went to the oversight at the assembly, bounced it off of them. They gave us the green light. We determined it was an open door from the Lord. It cost me $400 to take a week off of work. Um, but I didn't have the money, by the way, but I had the flexibility. And so I think some Christians would say that this is foolish. Um, but we decided before the Lord, in faith, we would go down and we would trust the Lord. That he had opened the door, we're going to trust the Lord. And so we went down. Uh, I, I worked with the guys in the morning, cutting down trees and, and splitting firewood. It was a blast. And then I taught them uh, in the afternoons. And we had a fabulous week. Uh, we drove home at the end of the week, and in my mailbox were two checks, and the total of those two checks were $400. So, so the Lord said, um, if you walk through open doors that I give you, I will support you to do my work. You think that was an important lesson for me to learn? Yeah, now this is my life, right? The Lord is preparing me. What I'm telling you is that the Lord is preparing me for the life he had for me. That will be different. Right? All of us are going to live different lives. But the Lord will prepare you for the life he has for you. The next year I'd gotten a raise. Um, that was good news. It was nice to be making a little bit more money. It cost me $500 to take a week off of work. Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp, a different camp in the Midwest called. And they said, we don't have a director for Teen One, the one you went to me with, with me too. And um, anyways, um, we did the same thing. We talked and prayed about it, went to the oversight, determined it was an open door before the Lord. Uh, went down, had a fabulous week. By the way, I said this. I don't have the skills. If Steve Price were here, he would laugh and tell you that's true. Um, I, I've never directed. I don't want to direct. I don't think I'd be good at it. Um, like I told him all those things, right? And he just said, it's an open door from the Lord, right? You should do it. By the way, I love directing. I love it. I direct our camp back home, and I love it. Um, but I didn't know that when I was 24 years old. So I paid $500, took the week off work, went down, had a fabulous week, got home. There were three checks in my mailbox this time, and the total of those three checks were $500. And so, again, it's just so obvious. The Lord was saying, if I open a door for you, if you, in complete dependence on me, walk through that door, then then I will provide for you. I will teach you what you need to know, and I will be with your mouth. Does that make sense? 
Now, I'm not just standing telling stories aimlessly. I'm hoping that this will provoke the people of God to think, right? When the Lord gives you an opportunity and you think, I don't have the skills, right? You could think of that as humble, right? Oh, well, other brothers are skilled that way. Other sisters are skilled that way. I don't have the skills. The key to the whole thing is, is the living God opening the door for you? If He is, right? And it takes discernment. It takes a level of spiritual maturity. If you can discern that the open door is from the Lord, then in utter dependence on the Lord, you walk through that door and then these things come into play. I will teach you. I will be with your mouth. Okay, one more. Excuse number five. Um, Verse number 13. Is that right? Yep, verse number 13. But he said, this is Moses, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So again, in my own words, excuse number five is can't someone else just do it? You finally see Moses' heart obviously coming out at this point in the story. Right? He's had all these different excuses. They sound so noble, right? They sound so humble. But finally you see all this is is self-will. I don't want to do it. Can't someone else do it? Have you ever thought that about evangelism? I don't want to only focus on the need of the lost, but I, um, Satan is winning incredible victories with this little phrase, I'm not a gifted evangelist. Right? The work of evangelism was always designed by God to be done by non-gifted evangelists. Amen? I don't mind if you respond. I won't tell anybody, I promise. Yeah. It was always designed that way. Ephesians chapter 4. Where's the one place in the New Testament that the gift of evangelism shows up? Ephesians chapter 4. It's in the universal gifts. Right? Why? Why is the gift of evangelism there? It's for the equipping of the body. People like me, non-gifted evangelists. It's for the equipping of the body to do the work of the ministry. It's God's design. So finally, his self-will just comes out. Can't someone else do it? And let's go ahead and look at God's response. Um, Verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Look, he's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So God's answer, if you're taking notes, was anger. He was angry at Moses' self-will. I don't think we're going to have too hard of a time answering this, but I want to ask it anyways. Was God right to be angry with Moses? Sure he was. Can God still be angry at his people? Frustrated. There's easier questions to answer. Can Jesus Christ be disgusted by your life? Sure. That one's obvious, right? Revelation 3. Lukewarm Christianity disgusts Jesus Christ. I will spew you out of my mouth. He hates that. He hates the lukewarm Christianity. So the Lord gets angry at God's self-will. And then the other thing I want you to notice is as a response to Moses' stubborn self-will, he ends up getting Aaron. And what I want to simply say is Aaron was not Moses. Right? Moses was Moses. Aaron was not Moses. Aaron participated with the people of God in idolatry. Right? I put the gold into the fire and outlapped the calf. Right? That was Aaron. 
He was not Moses. And so my point is simple. If you persist in stubborn self-will, then what you'll end up with is second best rather than the best that God has for you. Make sense? I've been, I feel like I've been learning this lesson for 15 years. Depending on the Lord, depending on the Lord, depending on the Lord. There's a big part of me that likes being a number two. I like that. Almost all my friends. My best friend is a year older than me. My closest little circle of friends, like the five guys that I'm closest to, are anywhere from a decade older than me to two decades older than me. I like that. Wisdom, safety, security. I like that, right? I like being a number two. There's a lot of times where the Lord will call me to be a number one and and to lead, like Paul. And um, it's just more uncomfortable. Like I feel like the Lord's been training me to to respond to Him, to obey Him, not to call in a number one, right? I don't have the skills, right? Can't someone else be the number one and I'll pray for Him. I'll go with Him. I'll support Him, right? That's what Moses is doing. So let me wrap all of this up. Obedience has a price tag. Anybody that doesn't say that is lying. Obedience will cost you something. Social rejection, professional suicide, your comfort zone can be destroyed. What about my family? Moses in this story left his in-laws, right? All of that. Obedience definitely is costly. Disobedience costs far more. So the whole point of the application is this. We do the same thing that Moses does or did. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. What if they don't believe me? I don't have the skills. Can't someone else just do it? In 1952, uh, the, the 2B Queen of England was going to be crowned and they sent out an invitation to the royal family. And at the bottom of that invitation, uh, it had these, these little words at the very bottom printed. It said this, all excuses apart. What does that mean? This is the Queen of England. Now, I know we, right, we, we fought the British, right? Like, and so that's the whole American mindset. But if that's not your mindset, right? This is the Queen of England, right? The future Queen of England. If you get an invitation from the future monarch of the British kingdom, and at the bottom of that invitation it says, all excuses apart, what does that mean? It means you better be there, right? If you have plans, you cancel those plans, right? And, and according to what I've read, they were there, all of them. Right? It means you have to come, basically. And my point is simple. When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords opens a door for you and calls you to do a work, we cannot give him less respect than the royal family gives the Queen of England. When he opens a door and calls us to a work, um, I pray earnestly that the Spirit of God will bring God's answers back to your mind. And when you respond by saying, I'm not good enough, then you'll also have the Spirit of God show you, I will be with you. And on and on, everything that we've talked about. So, may the Lord use His Word for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for the opportunity to, to open up Your Word. We give You thanks, Father, for, for the myriads of things that can be learned from Your Word. Lord, This uh, we've talked about a lot of things over this past hour. And... Lord, I just want to pray for grace to take these things in, to soak these things up. I I pray for grace for my brothers and sisters uh, to file these things away and specifically to have the Spirit of God bring them back at just the right times. Father, there would be many people in this audience that would be like me, uh, that would be hesitant in gospel situations and would desperately need your help 
to be used by you in those situations. Lord, I feel so comfortable heralding your gospel from a pulpit and I can be so uh, intimidated sitting next to somebody in a plane. Father, please, when we get ourselves into the things that you call us to do, we pray, Father, that you would help us to be genuinely Christ-likely humble and obedient to be dependent on you, to say amen. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet at the same time, not to draw back in self-will or self-protection. We're called to go outside the city, outside the camp and bear his reproach. Father, it's just easier to live the American dream. Lord, we read your word in 1 Corinthians 4 where it says that you reign as kings before the time. Father, that is our overwhelming tendency to reign as kings before the time. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be servants and and help us to not duck our heads spiritually and just to want to get along and value people liking us more than we value representing Jesus Christ to them. Father, all of it is just to say, please help your people with your word. Please help your people to honor your son. Show us, Lord, we pray, the ways that you would have us to apply these things. Father, I just want to thank you and praise you that the oversight of this assembly decided to have a day of prayer tomorrow. I would, before you, the living God, that every assembly in North America would see the need and call for a day of prayer. Father, I pray that the Christians, uh, if they're sitting here tonight wrestling over whether or not they will come, I pray, Father, that you would convince them of the value of coming to seek the living God. Father, I pray that you would reward them abundantly, greatly tomorrow as they press on in prayer, as they seek to honor you and to seek your face in prayer. I pray that you would teach them about yourself. I pray that they would know you better in coming days than they've ever known you before. Father, I I earnestly pray for your help and blessing, for your guidance, that you would teach your people and reward your people as they seek after you. I am looking forward to tomorrow, praying with your people here. And we just want to commit that to you even tonight. Father, you're an amazing God. You're the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. We love you. We commit the rest of our night to you. All in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.